are listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. We have Billy back from his exams joining me in the studio. My name is Brady and we're excited to have you. Yeah, no, thanks for the introduction again, Brady. I survived. I, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit how my exams went at the end, but uh, it was very good. So I'm excited to go on to the next phase. Yeah, we'll talk about that towards the end. We want to get a few platform updates out of the way first, and then we have a unique episode coming up. Just in terms of a quick update on our platform, we just still have our Bordeaux offerings available on the site right now for investment. Uh, as we've discussed a little bit in the past, our Bordeaux Futures collection, Bordeaux Amper More 2021 collection, as well as our Bordeaux Millennium collection are both still available on the site. And we do have more collections coming up here in the near future, just giving those offerings a little bit of time to breathe and give people a chance to set a good foundation for their portfolios. In terms of the rest of the episode today, we really wanted to do a deep dive on a topic. And we chose a topic that we think is relevant to conversation in winemaking and wine production, just the wine industry as a whole, whether we're in the US or in Europe, really everywhere around the world, people are taking notice of this idea of sustainability, biodynamic farming, regenerative farming. Yeah, exactly. Regenerative farming, trying to move agriculture forward in terms of the way that we think about cultivating vineyards. And so we have someone on today who is certainly an authority in this space, definitely in California, but I think is, is gaining in prominence around. We have Jason Haas, who is the proprietor of Tablas Creek in Pastor Robles. Make They have a really wide portfolio of awesome wines, and they're doing some really interesting things in the vineyard. So we're excited to talk with Jason towards the end of this episode. Yeah, and just to elaborate a bit there, Jason and Tablas Creek are the forefront both on promoting Rhone varietals in the U.S., but also on the forefront of all aspects of sustainability. So he dives into regenerative farming. But the reason we wanted to go deep with a winemaker, proprietor, winery owner, somebody in that realm, is that a lot of our producers that are featured in our collections, like Domain de la Romani Conti, they're biodynamic. A lot of Bordeaux, the top vineyards are moving towards more sustainable priming practices, if not completely biodynamic. So the real importance here is what you'll hear a lot of winemakers talking about or vineyard managers is, is it's almost becoming a necessity, not because they want to be sustainable to help future climate change, but with climate change happening now. So having healthy soils means your soils holds more water. It actually helps more retain heat when you have the right cover crops. So there's a lot of things that actually help protect it against current issues that are coming up thanks to climate change, as well as preventing future climate change. So he provides a really great insight into kind of what the efforts they're doing and then the results that they produce. These aren't just while these, he is a Paso Robles producer, and it's really interesting to hear about the specific area. These are things that people are doing the world over, and it's really what's going into making the best wines in the world. Yeah, and this is well beyond a conversation about maybe winemaking, for instance, and adding things to wines like additives and other. We're far beyond the idea that a winemaker might add something foreign to the wine after it's brought into the facility. None of the producers of any of these top quality wines that we feature in our portfolios are doing things like that that I feel like maybe are propagated sometimes in the news and people might talk about really high high production commercial producers doing. This is beyond that. This is out in the vineyards, really thinking about how to cultivate the most healthy ecosystem around the plots. 
For sure. And doing more than just not spraying chemicals and having solar panels. Yeah. Yeah. We'll dive into that. I did want to share a quick update on my exams last week. The two days went well. I ended up getting to my tasting exam a second late, thanks to a little timing snafu, but I knew a lot of the wines pretty well. It was pretty exciting. There was um, a a Chilean flight. So I got to call out a, a Carmenere directly, which I never thought I would be able to do which was exciting. And I also had a, a German Spätlaser Riesling, which I wanted to drink instead of just taste. So those were my highlights. But uh, oh, I guess actually there was a Northern Rhone flight as well in theme of this collection. So really high quality Viognier and two Syrahs that Brady would have nice. been able to probably get it. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, too bad that Riesling wasn't your the 12th wine. You could have just drank it afterwards, but you probably had to stay focused at that time. It was in my final flight, but I was <laughs> I was tempted. But yeah, no, the other ones we had a flight of different Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio styles, and then a South African Cabernet. No, it wasn't, sorry, it's a Western Australian Cabernet. And mm. and a Verdeo from Spain that was not made in a really aromatic or flavorful style. It was just meant to be that simple white and see if you can guess where the simple white's from. Did you call it? I did not call that one, even though I drink a decent amount of Verdeo, which is kind of weird, but I think the ones we drink are more natty producers. So I always get like this, not even natty, but like I always get this really nice citrus aromatic profile. Mm. And this one had, it tasted just like a run of the mill Pinot Grigio, which is what I said. And it was not, but uh, yeah, I got, I knew what 10 of 12 of them were after the exam. I feel pretty good on that front. And the theory went pretty fun. I had a question about Sonoma Chardonnay, which was interesting because it's not often you take an exam and then you go to where that question was from. So that was cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very good. We're all very proud of Billy here as he trudges on his 40-year journey <laughs> to, be, to get the diploma. And yeah, but now it's awesome, especially to get behind the scenes and hear about that, the process of it, the regions and varieties and stuff that you have to learn to have that broad knowledge is really incredible stuff. That's definitely a feat and glad you could update us positively. Yep. All this just to get to take an exam to apply to the Master yeah. Wine Program <laughs> someday. <laughs> 40, 40 year. <laughs> Yeah, wandering uh, in the California desert. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll get there. But all right, so enough about me. Let's hop on to the interview with Jason Haas here again. He is the proprietor of Tablas Creek, which is in central California, one of the foremost experts in Rhone varietals in the country. And like we said, sustainability. So enjoy our interview. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So as many, any people may have known right before I joined, I worked for a producer who has vineyards in in Paso Robles and in Monterey. And for those who don't know Paso as well, Jason, we definitely did our intro, but he's the proprietor of one of the most well-known and cutting edge in terms of sustainability and producers in Paso, Tablas Creek. So very excited to kind of hear about, you know, how you and your dad really got the company, the winery and the vineyards where they are today and how you first launched into wine yourself. Thanks. Should I just jump in and tell the story or do you, how, how do you want to, how do you want to do this? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting to hear how you grew up in, in wine and then had a little period, maybe a way to try out some other stuff and then got back in. Let's start from the beginning there. Yeah. So my dad was a wine importer. That was a, that's the origin story of Tablas Creek is that it's a partnership between my family and one of the families whose wine my dad imported all the way back into the 1960s. So 
I grew up around wine. I grew up around wine people. I grew up getting taken along on trips to France, like I'm sure a difficult and squirmy piece of baggage. Grew up <laughs> playing in the streets and the cellars with the kids of my dad's French suppliers. But as I grew up, I didn't really see myself doing what he had been doing on the import side. I really enjoyed the summers that I got to work at wineries and I tended, if I didn't have a summer job, my dad tended to arrange for a summer job of me working in a cellar somewhere. And I thought he had this ulterior motive of improving my French, but usually it was, it involved some actual hands-on cellar work as well as like living with families. And as Tablas Creek took shape when I was in high school and college, like that piece of what we were doing resonated with me more deeply than buying and selling other people's wines. There wasn't really, we got started in 1989. That was when we bought this property and when we imported vine cuttings from our partners at Bocastel. But there was a long stretch there where what was going on here was pretty theoretical. We had a grapevine nursery or the vines were in quarantine initially. And then we built a grapevine nursery and there was a couple of years of vine propagation. And then we got vines on the ground finally in 1994 but we didn't have a crop until 97. And that was the year that we built our winery. And then we had a winery and we had wine fermenting and aging in barrel, but we didn't have anything to sell. It wasn't really a business yet. So when I graduated from college in 95, there wasn't really much to do. I didn't really need to be out here and involved yet. So I went to grad school, got a master's degree in archaeology and used it as a chance to travel and teach and work on languages. And then I finished that master's degree in 98. And even then, still, there really wasn't it wasn't a, a need for somebody to run a business out here. It was still a project. I accepted a job. I got recruited out of grad school for a by a tech company that was teaching web programming languages and needed people who had teaching backgrounds and some experience or aptitude with web technologies who could learn the rest of the details. And I figured I would go and get some really valuable technical skills and and I did, but what I mostly got by joining this little startup in 1998 is I got business school. Like it wasn't formal business school, but it was on the job business school of joining this little tech startup and staying there for four years and having it grow from seven employees to 80 employees by the time I left and op open up offices in six different cities. And I got a chance to manage people and projects and write and teach and market and make a million mistakes. It was everybody at the company it was their first or second real job out of college. Um, and then by 01, when I'd gone as far as I was going to go in that company, by that point, Tablas Creek really had grown into a business that needed somebody to pay attention to it from that perspective. And my dad was at that point in his mid-70s already. I knew I wanted to work with him. I didn't want to wait any longer and worry that maybe something would happen to him or his health would fail or you never know. And at the same time, I think the business side of what happened at Tablas Creek turned out to be more of a challenge than he anticipated. I, I think it's fair to say that he thought that given the pedigree of these vines coming from and the expertise coming from our partners at Bocastel, that the sales side would take care of it. And it turned out not to be the case. And in retrospect, I can totally see why. We were making blends that didn't really have a category on the market in that era out of grapes that people didn't know and couldn't pronounce from a part of California they'd never heard of with French names that didn't mean anything to them. Like That's four strikes. And the wonder we sold anything. So... Like I moved out in April of 02. And that year, just to give you a sense of the scope of the problem, we made 12,000 cases of wine and sold 4,000. Obviously, you don't sell it the same year you make it, but the writing is on the wall that you better figure this out. I moved out. My dad tasked me with figuring out the sales and marketing side of Tablas Creek. And 
in those early years, we just threw everything we could think of at the wall to see what stuck. We opened a tasting room, which we hadn't had. We started a wine club. We started getting involved with the local Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance and the Rhone Rangers and Hospice du Rhone. We started working with our distributors around the country and participating in festivals and events and like anything that we could think of to try to get the name out. And little by little, that that effort worked. We obviously had the advantage of having a story that had a lot of pieces and components to it. And after those first few difficult years, it's been a pleasure to be a part of. But the early years were tough. What, so what was Paso in 2000, 2001? And how, what was the landscape like in terms of Rhone varieties out there at the time? Because this could, you know, more or less, especially for people who are fans of the wines there, it's known as a place that specializes in Grenache and Syrah and these kinds of varieties that typify that area. It was very early days for that. So it was early days for Paso in its kind of modern rebirth as a wine destination. I think the first like legit restaurant opened up on the square in 1999. Wow. Before that, I used to remember Justin Baldwin, uh, founder of Justin Winery, used to joke that when he moved to Paso in the mid 80s, the best restaurant in town was the bowling alley where you could get a tuna <laughs> mill. Um, so Which it's like, the square is one of the most impressive dining destinations in that small confine of an area that I've been in, honestly. It's yeah, really, it's amazing. Really nice. Now, <laughs> Over the last 15, 20 years, there's now eight or 10 legitimately terrific restaurants in Paso. But they opened like little by little, starting in the late 90s. We got a couple more in the early 2000s, then one or two every year or two. And it's grown from there. And I think the reputation of the region as a Rhone destination, like that also built gradually over the 2000s. When we brought our vines in and when we planted our first vines in 1994, those were the only Rhone varieties in the ground in Paso Robles at the time. The, there was a history of Rhones here. Gary Eberly had done some really cool experiments with Syrah and the, at the old Estrella River Winery. And the Estrella clone of Syrah came from that was that originated here. But he'd at that point decided that as much as he loved it, it was way easier to sell Cabernet and he was going to pull out a Syrah and plant. I think, obviously, the choice that we made or more more accurately, the choice that the parents made to be involved in a project and choosing Paso Robles over everywhere else that we looked from Napa, Sonoma, Santa Barbara County, Sierra Foothills, everywhere else, that gave a certain amount of legitimacy to the idea of doing roans in Paso and people followed. In the late 90s, mid to late 90s, people were getting interesting grapevines in the ground. You started to see the early beginnings of some of the cultier wineries like Linicoloto and Saxum and Lavonture. You saw other people who were working in these kind of Rhone-Bordeaux hybrid ideas. And then you saw, as you got into the 2000s, you saw even the bigger players in town, the Jay Lors and the Justins and people like that, supplement the Bordeaux focus that they had previously had with plantings of Rhone varieties. So it grew fast when you got into the 2000s, but that was the beginning. When was the first hospice to grown? It was in, it used to move around. It was originally called the Viognier Guild. And I think it started in 93 or something. It settled in Paso in maybe 01. So again, that same era, that was also a piece of, I think what gave Paso the idea or gave people the idea that Paso was a, nexus for these Rhone things is that like every April, you'd have these amazing Rhone producers from all over the world gathering in 
Paso Robles of all places. And it it certainly had a kind of an incubator effect, I think, for, for Roan producers here. Yeah. And for our listeners who don't know, the Hospice du Rhone is modeled off the Hospice du Bone in, wow, France, in Bone, where... Basically, there are auctions. It's like a big wine festival in a way, a celebration of the wines of the area and wines are for sale. There's an auction. And in Paso, it's more just like a meeting of the minds of people from France, people all over growing Rhone varietals and, and kind of sharing of wine, but also educational. I was supposed to go last year, but um, I ended up being traveling. So I, we gave our tickets away to the Paso Rebels Wine Group and Facebook. But yeah, can you elaborate a little bit more on what it is? So if anybody wants to go. Yeah, it's a super cool wine festival. It's a three-day festival that now happens every other April in Paso Robles. So it happened this year, 2022. It'll happen again in 2024. And it's three days of seminars, lunches, dinners, um, vineyard tours, all dedicated to Rhone varieties. So there's producers from everywhere where Rhones are grown, obviously the south of France, but also places like Priorat, or Catalonia, or places like South Africa, Australia, California, Washington State, anywhere where there's a decent presence of Rhone varieties, you get producers coming to show what they're doing and also to learn what everybody else is doing. It's a it's it's a really cool opportunity because you really do get the best of the Rhone all in one place. Can um, you can you quickly outline some of the? I think we've touched on a few some of the key varieties that are like maybe mainstream Rhone, and then also that next tier, because you guys also grow some really interesting stuff that maybe not everybody's heard of. Yeah, we set ourselves the task about almost 20 years ago now of having all of the Chateauneuf grape varieties. So just 13 studying for their <laughs> whatever, their master sommelier exam or their WSET exam, here goes. So basically, the ones that are best known on the red side are Grenache, Syrah, and Morvedra, and they're often abbreviated by their first initials, so GSM. And of those, Grenache is the most planted around the world. It's the most common in Cote d'Iron and Chateauneuf du Pape. It's one of the most planted grapes in the world. Syrah is um, a, a slightly cooler climate variety than Grenache. It originated in the northern Rhone. So in a place like Chateauneuf du Pape, that's about as far south as you can plant it and have it be great. But because it likes a slightly cooler climate, it has migrated to a number of other interesting places where it's done really well. Obviously, California, Australia, where it's called Shiraz, South Africa, and a number of other places around the world. And then Morvedra, which is the latest ripening and the most heat-loving of those three main grapes, which evolved in Spain and where Chateauneuf du Pape is about as far north as it can grow and be viable. That's still, most of Morve the Morvedra in the world is still planted in Spain, but there's a decent chunk in the south of France. There's some in a few other warm climate areas like California and, and Australia. So those are the main red ones. The main white ones are probably Viognier is probably the best known. And then there's also Roussan and Marsan that are reasonably famous, make great wines in the Northern Rhone in the South. And then there's a whole collection of more obscure varieties on the red side, things like Muscardin and Terre Noir and Sanso and Cunoise and Baccarès. On the white side, things like Claret Blanche and Picpoul, Picardin, Bourboulanc. They tend to be higher acid varieties, whereas the mainstream Rhones tend to be a little lusher and denser. So you can understand why those higher acid varieties are probably more often applied as blending grapes because they tend to bring freshness and brightness, but they maybe don't have the density and persistence that people expect out of kind of the great wines of the world. But they're the main ones. And then there's um, sometimes there's color variants. There's Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris. There's Picpoul Noir. There's Claret Rose, there's some really obscure ones. And there's some of them that are obscure enough that 
like our experimental plantings here have measurably moved the needle in terms of how much exists in the world. We planted half an acre of Picardin, which is one of the cool, rare white grapes of Chateauneuf and the Rhone Valley. We planted half an acre in 2013 and increased the world's Picardin footprint by 40%. So anyway, it's one of the fun things that we've gotten to do at Tablas Creek is work with our partners at Bocastel to bring in cuttings of varieties that really maybe nobody's planted in a serious way in generations and then vinify them on their own, bottle them on their own and get to share them with people. It's been super fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Should we transition now into the other thing that you guys are known for? The sustainability and the kind of regenerative quasi-biodynamic farming you guys do? Sure. Should I track our path as to how we got here? Yeah, that'd be great. So we, in general at Tablas Creek, we model what we do off of what they do at Bocastel. That's our starting point, is to, to farm and make wine the way that they do it at Bocastel. And then adjust as we realize that the differences in our place dictate an adjustment. Mm-hmm. So our starting point in farming was to farm organically because Bocastel has been fully organic since the 1950s out of a conviction that this is the best possible way to make grapes that really reflect the character of their place. So that was our starting point. We realized, though, fairly quickly that if we're trying to emphasize character of place, it's good and important and right to try to replace chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. But really, we should be trying to eliminate any outside inputs at all and instead make the ecosystem that we're growing grapes in a complete and balanced ecosystem. So that's what led us from organics to biodynamics, little by little. Then we got serious about it in 2010. Um, We decided to convert a 20-acre slice of the vineyard to, to fully biodynamic farming. And we're kind of surprised and impressed that in the blind tastings, that first vintage, the blocks that we were farming biodynamically floated to the top of our blind tasting trials. Happened again the next year. And we decided, okay, we don't know why this is happening exactly. We had thought that the benefit would be a long-term benefit in like greater vine age and vine health into third, fourth, fifth decades of vine age. And that was where the quality was going to come. But we decided that if it was showing well enough that we could notice it in year one and year two, like we should be farming more of the vineyard that way. So we doubled it in 2012. We got our own flock of sheep to do a lot of the weed control and the fertilization. That grew each year. In 2015, we realized we had to hire a shepherd to organize our grazing flock, which had grown to 150 animals at that point. And it turned out that the shepherd who we hired had trained at the Savory Institute, which is one of the leading kind of research and advocacy nexuses for regenerative farming. And he got us thinking about this in kind of a different way, thinking about what we were doing more than just taking care of grapevines, as that what we were doing was farming soil. So The combination of the flock of sheep that we had, the fact that we were already certified organic and biodynamic, got us an invitation from the Regenerative Organic Alliance to join the new pilot program in 2018 for the Regenerative Organic Certification. And all of a sudden, all of these different pieces that we thought were important and useful kind of clicked into a single framework for us. So we were a part of that pilot program in 2018 and 2019. We got our regenerative organic certification in 2020. We were the first vineyard in the world to get that. And then we've been acting as a kind of a a center for other people to come and learn about that over the last few years. So for people who don't maybe understand what regenerative organic is, let me lay it out. So 
for us, it addressed the shortcomings of both organic and biodynamic, and both of which we believed in enough to certify ourselves. And we, in fact, we maintain both of those certifications, but I think that they have some weaker areas. So for example, organic certifications are concerned with essentially a list of things you can't put on your vineyard. Like if you don't put on any of the chemical fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides that are on the prohibited list, and you go through an audit, you're organic. It doesn't really say anything about your use of resources or the way that you conduct your business or the way you treat your people. So you could be flood irrigating a water-intensive crop in a desert climate, and as long as you aren't using chemicals, you couldn't call yourself organic. But I think we would all agree that it's not a great use of societal resources. On the same token, you could be mistreating your workers. And again, as long as you're not using chemicals, that's you can be organic. So those, that was the weakness in organic. It's very focused on what it is, and it doesn't go outside that boundary at all. Biodynamics is a much more holistic look at how you make a great ecosystem. It's focused a lot on things like building up the soil microbiome and reducing tillage and building biodiversity so that you've got a range of different inputs from different plant and animal and microbial sources. But it's tied up in this kind of mystical philosophy that comes down from its founder, who was an Austrian philosopher more than a century ago. And if you read the literature about biodynamics, like it's all about activating cosmic energies and, and working in conjunction with the cycles of the moon, all these things that are hopelessly unscientific and which I think in many cases obscure what really matters about that philosophy. So regenerative organics basically takes the soil health pieces of biodynamics, adds a requirement that you be measuring those soils and showing that the things that you're doing are increasing the organic matter and the carbon content of your soil, increasing the microbial activity. It adds a, a requirement that you eliminate essentially bare soil so that you're always photosynthesizing, you're holding the carbon that plants create in the soil rather than tilling it, exposing bare ground and re-releasing it back into the atmosphere so your soils can be a part of the fight against climate change, requires that you be working to reduce your use of shared resources like groundwater and non-renewable energy. Um, and then it adds separate protocols for animal welfare you have to hold an animal welfare certification if you have working animals on your farm and for farm worker fairness. So you have to show that you are paying your farm workers a living wage for where you are. You have to show that you're working collaboratively with them and investing in their skills and encouraging and acting on their feedback. And the whole goal of this is to look at your soils, but also look at the externalities of your farming decisions. So make farming decisions that will have a positive impact on your people on your neighbors, on the broader environment, and on the community that you're a part of. And for us, it just made so much sense. So we've we got that certification in 2020 and and we've been doing everything we can to try to get other people on board ever since. Yeah. Now that go ahead, Brady. As to say the the philosophical part of it is really admirable and exciting to hear that people are being this thoughtful about these processes and the way they farm. But what were the most practical outcomes? You had mentioned that those wines kind of floated to the top of your blind tastings. What are the other kind of practical benefits or outcomes just in terms of the quality of your your wines, the health of your your vines, like kind of things have you seen? Yeah. So the health of the vineyard has been evident 
in recent years. And we see this both with the vines themselves, but maybe even more dramatically with things like the cover crops, where if we don't get the sheep into a particular block within a couple of months, the cover crops are taller than we are, growing what, five, six, seven feet high sometimes. We, when we sent our first soil samples in, there's a, you have to do this for the certification. We sent the soils into it, soil samples into a lab at Cornell. We got a call from them saying, are these soils really from California? And our response was like, <laughs> of course they're from California. Are you doubting us? But they explained that typically the organic matter component of soils in a climate like ours in Paso Robles is like one or 2%. And the samples that we had sent in were five and a half percent organic matter, which is similar to what you would find in a place like the upper Midwest, where it rains all the time. There's things growing all the time. There's things decomposing all the time. And we know that the increasing the organic matter in your topsoil is one of the most powerful ways that you can then also have that soil hold more water. So for us, where drought is probably the single biggest concern that we have, knowing that our soils are retaining thousands and thousands of gallons more water than they would have before is ultimately where the rubber meets the road. So see this in, for example, blocks that we know have virus that five or six years ago would have just the leaves would have turned yellow or red and stopped ripening in late August or early September. Now you see those same leaves staying green all the way through harvest. Um, we see it in the vigor and the growth of new vines when we plant them, our ability to get new vineyard blocks established without any irrigation at all. We've been planting wide space, wow. dry farmed in recent years. And those blocks, like looking at six, seven year old vineyards where the trunks of those vines are already like six inches, six inches in diameter and looking at how, how much vigor those vines have in a climate that we know, and we've had two wet years in the last 10 here in Paso Robles. It has not been a particularly easy stretch for grapevines and seeing the vineyard thrive through this, seeing the numbers, measuring the lab numbers of the grapes that we pick and looking at the quantities of the micronutrients that in a, in past years we might have needed to supplement to make sure that the yeasts could the yeasts could act. Like we haven't had to do that in years. And I'm convinced that it's because of the health and the richness and the biodiversity of the soils we've been able to build. Yeah, I liked your term and people were probably confused at the beginning when you were saying you farm soil and it's like, of course, everybody farms soil, but like the whole point is growing that organic biomass and that ecosystem that lives within the soil to be able to retain those. So I think that's a really cool way of putting it. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the types of cover crop? First, what is the cover crop for those who don't know? And then why certain things are grown? Because I think some of these are, it's really interesting to think about what the different elements that they add back to the soil for each different type. Sure. So the idea of a cover crop is, I think, a pretty intuitive one. You're you want to have something that's growing in the winter while your grapevines are dormant for a couple of reasons. One, if you don't have something growing, you worry about erosion. It rains a lot in the winter here. And if you have bare ground, like a lot of your topsoil is going to end up at the down in the creek rather than on the vines where it needs to be. But beyond that, it's an opportunity to build the organic matter of your soils because the winter is really when things grow in california people who aren't from california think of the summer as when things grow but in california it's dry in the summer and all the rain comes in the winter and the hillsides turn this incredibly vibrant green and that's your opportunity to get a lot of stuff to grow so we'll typically plant a mix of 
four or five or six different seeds, depending on what we're looking for from a block. A normal cover crop mix would include a couple of legumes, which are going to fix nitrogen in the soil. So that's typically sweet peas and clovers. Then we've got which provide a lot of biomass. They grow fast and they grow tall. They're also something that, of course, the sheep that graze through the vineyard really love. We plant vetch, which is this aggressive ground cover that gets roots in the ground early and keeps erosion from being a problem and also builds a lot of biomass. It likes to climb the oats, so they work symbiotically together. And then we'll usually include some radishes, these big daikon radishes that act so soil aerators. They'll grow down a foot or and then we leave them there and then they decompose and that aerates the soil. So that's our normal mix. So it's a combination of erosion control, fertility, biomass, and soil aeration. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I always love how the different things that people have heard of are grown for like different actual purposes. We were actually just in Sonoma over the weekend and I was trying to point out to my girlfriend where there were and were not cover crops. And to your point about the health, it was really interesting. We drove by most of the vineyards. We were out towards Sebastopol. So it was mostly really smaller plots and in a lot of cover crops, really nicely farmed vineyards. But there was one that was clearly conventionally farmed, just bare dirt, not even in that low of a spot. And everything else was yellow, green, going green to yellow, just because they're mostly Pinot. But these were like bright red leaves or falling off already. Like clearly... Those vines were way beyond in terms of the time period. And it's just, it's crazy sometimes how you can see the night and day difference just by a farming method, because these vineyards are right next to each other in many cases. Yeah. I mean, I think that the modernist farming philosophy where you're going to plant your crop and you're going to eliminate everything that might compete with it, and then you're going to give that crop all of the things that it needs. You're going to give it the water that it needs and the fertilizer that it needs. And like the idea that creates a healthy farm is at least 20 years out of date, but it doesn't mean that you don't see it. You do still see it. But yeah, the more different things you can have growing in your vineyard at the same time, these, that's going to enrich the soil. You're going to create these kind of fungal networks that connect um, roots and actually do a lot of the work of allowing organic matter that falls onto a vineyard plot to decompose. And then when you kill off the competition in your soil, you're also killing off those networks. And so then the natural decomposition process doesn't work as well. You're creating this kind of self-fulfilling cycle where you need to then fertilize in order to give your crop what it needs. But you're always working at a disadvantage because the nature is much more complicated than that. So yeah, you can give it like it's three main nutrients, but there's certainly micronutrients that it's not getting because you haven't identified that those are needed. And creating a healthy ecosystem within your vineyard is generally going to be a much better long-term solution. Yeah, it's like a human trying just to live off energy drinks. Like sure, an energy drink will give you like energy for a little while, but if you exclusively live off that and constantly push yourself to the limit without supplementing <laughs> right an healthy. energy drink and a multivitamin vitamin <laughs> yeah it's not actually healthy yeah <laughs> and then Jason, I, I, I bet you um, run machinery through the vines way less than the average producer does has that changed for you guys over the last 20 years and how often are you running a tractor between mirrors if at all we will typically run a tractor through once in the late spring after we've had to pull the sheep out of the vineyard because typically we'll get our flock into the vineyard at this time of year after we're done with harvest. And then we'll have a rotational grazing plan where they'll go through the whole vineyard going, moving to different blocks every 24 hours. But we have to pull them out of the vineyard when we get to bud break in April. 
And usually there's still plenty of moisture in the ground. The cover crop is still growing. So typically the cover crop will keep growing into May. And at some point in, usually in May, sometimes in June, depending on what the spring was like, we'll have to go through and mow or crimp the cover crop that's still there so that it doesn't go wild and grow in amongst the grapevines and make it impossible for air to flow through and keep mildew pressure down. Depending on the block, we'll usually also run a little in-row cultivator again to get rid of the weeds directly like right next to where the grapevines are so it doesn't they don't grow up and become a problem in the clusters. So Typically, we'll do that once in the late spring, and that may be the only time that we'll have to send a tractor through. We'll usually, we will, we'll have a tractor that'll be dragging the bins that we'll pick into, but that doesn't go up every row. It's every third row. Um, we may, depending on whether we need to spread compost, we may run a quad through there to do a compost spreading. We may run a some quads through in the summer in order if we're if we need to spray with either a biodynamic prep or with if we're having mildew pressures we need to spray with something to keep the mildew down but it's you're right it's a lot less than a normal vineyard would and generally smaller machinery which is soil compaction i've definitely been to vineyards where it's like walking path through the rows and it's yeah tough i was just saying the soil compaction too people don't think about that in addition to running fossil fuels and Mm -hmm. everything you're just basically creating a oh yeah that's what i was talking about was the soil compaction yeah yeah but so with this i guess we everybody wants to talk about climate change and sustainability i guess you guys you're positioning yourself well california i'm here we're in year i guess it's really your multiple of a drought and it depends who what year you started it but how do you see paso as a whole kind of changing in the face of climate change and then how do you where do you see tablas and a few years, anything you're going to try to work on or do differently as you go forward? We are all of the new blocks that we're planting wide spaced dry farm. So that's different than what we started with. We again, we start are out these by head trained or so these are all head trained. Yeah. Head trained, wide spaced, either eight by eight, 10 by 10, 10 by 12 or 12 by 12 spacing, depending on what the topography is. And that's different than the way that we started. We started trying to mimic the same vine density as they use at Bocastel. So that's 1800 vines an acre. So we were planting eight by three or 10 by three, depending on topography. So we're planting a lot less density, a lot less densely than we were. Um, we're also experimenting with different rootstocks. We've always been using fairly deep rooting, high vigor rootstocks, but we've gone in recent years to looking at the really old fashioned rootstocks like St. George that are that got rejected because they were too vigorous for places like Napa Valley where they could get down and tap into a water table. But in a dry farm vineyard block here are just perfect. So we've been doing that. We've been Working to eliminate tilling in the vineyard little by little over the last five or six years, we've eliminated it in all of our trellis blocks up to this point. The dry farm blocks, we've started planting new blocks with no-till, so with kind of permaculture in there. And we're going to be working anxiously to try to transition some of the dry farm blocks that we've done so far that have been had the surface spading or disking up to this point because you can if you've stopped that cold turkey you can cause some problems that you maybe haven't anticipated we have neighbors who tried to go tried to go no-till in an established dry farmed block and lost a lot of their vine. that's a lot of the transition we're working on and then beyond that just trying to make sure that things like the sources of our energy are cleaner and cleaner we put in our last bank of solar panels 
last year that should get us to 100% solar powered, which is something that we've been wanting to do for a long time. We're going to be transitioning our tractors so that those are all electric so that we can work off of that solar array rather than having to burn diesel. We've been building our own, we built our own biochar kiln. So we've been, we've been buying biochar and supplementing it with a small kiln that we kind of jerry-rigged here, but we built our own larger kiln last year, and we're going to be trying to increase that production in a significant way. What is biochar exactly? So biochar is a, it's a form of charcoal that is produced at high temperatures where it's incomplete combustion at high temperatures. So if you think of the way that a lot of the natural fertility was created in a place like a California forest climate, a lot of it was created when forest fires would run through, a tree would burn partially or a log would burn partially and then fall and smother that fire. And charcoal is famous for lasting a really long time. So it's why they use it to date archaeological sites is that you can find charcoal 4,000 years later. Whereas if it had just been wood, it would already have decomposed and would be gone. What you can do if you turn your woody material, whether that's vine prunings or whether that's fallen branches or whatever else, if you turn that into charcoal rather than either composting it or burning it in a burn pile, you kind of short circuit the carbon cycle. You take about 20% of that carbon and turn it into a form that doesn't decompose or doesn't decompose for a really long time. And that has a lot of additional benefits. It's a terrific soil lightener. It's a very crystalline structure. So you add it to your soil, it gets incorporated and it reduces your soil's density. It increases the spaces in your soil that will hold. And it ends up being one of the things that a lot of those fungal networks really, it helps build fungal associations. It has advantages in everything from climate change to soil health and it's just a question of how you make it at enough scale to to have it have it make a difference. Does that need to be tilled in or is that just sprinkled on top? You can sprinkle it on top. It gets incorporated little by little into the soil. You could also just get in if you wanted to, but typically we don't bother. Cool. That's really interesting. As a face of ruined varieties and sustainability and kind of Paso as a whole over these years, how I feel like the region's been getting a lot of traction. There's been a lot of new AVAs coming on. Can you talk a little bit about where you are in Paso and what the whole region's kind of like for our listeners? Yeah. So if people haven't been to Paso, just to orient where we are, it's almost exactly halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco, about three and a half hours away from each, a couple hours north of Santa Barbara, a couple hours south of Monterey, and separated from the Pacific Ocean by one range of mountains. So where we are, um, where I'm sitting, I'm only 10 miles from the ocean, but and I'm at 1,500 feet elevation, but there's a 3,000-foot-high ridge of the southern part of the Santa Lucia Mountains that's in between me and the water. So that ridge is what allows Paso to warm up because that acts as a barrier and holds back the influx of fog and that direct marine influence. We get a lot of indirect marine influence in terms of extra rain in the winter, not the direct influence of like fog and chilly winds from the west in the summer. Within that, though, Paso is a pretty big area. It stretches roughly 40 miles east to west, the the AVA, and 30 miles north to south. It's 650,000 acres. There's 40,000 acres of grapevines planted in there, and there are 11 sub-AVAs that try to break up this really pretty big region into 
warmer and more mid-climate areas, wetter and drier areas, higher elevation, middle elevation, and then lower elevation. There's some areas on the east side of town where it's a, a sandier, more alluvial soil that's been brought there by the Estrella River and the other associated rivers over the millennia. Then west of town, you're in these foothills of the Santa Lucia Mountains. You've got a, a, a more marine soil, more calcareous, more limestone. And then you've got the lowest point in those mountains is in the southwestern corner of the Paso Robles AVA. It's called the Templeton Gap. And that's where there's the most marine fluence, even though, even though it's still there. It's still a moderate influence area, not a big influence area like the Petaluma Gap or the Santa Maria Valley. So it's a overall Paso has in common that it's a long growing season, lots of sun, relatively warm days, quite cold nights, relatively dry. But there, within that, there's a fair amount of variation, lots of variation in soils and a fair amount of variation in terms of things like climate. And you guys are further to the west side. Yeah, um, we're in the Adelaida district, which is the northwesternmost district. I'm um, and again, there's good, if people are curious about Paso Robles, there's a lot of great resources on, on the website of the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance, which is just pasowine.com. There's maps and interactive things that will allow you to look at soils, to chart an itinerary if you want to visit only people who grow more vedra or however else you want to organize your visit here. But that would be the resource I would recommend people go to. Cool. Yeah. And for our listeners, a little sneak preview, we're actually going to have Joel Peterson on to talk about Wine branding is branding a region. So we're going to hear a lot more from the Paso Wine Alliance. All awesome. I think those are a lot of my main questions. I would uh, just last to say, are you importing any more new varietals? Like I know you have the Picardin. Is there anything else that you're excited about that just getting in the ground and we might see in a few years? Yeah, there's a couple of others. We've At this point, we have everything that we imported is in production. Doesn't mean we've actually gotten to the point where it can be bottled yet, but at the very least, we're harvesting it. So. Some of the other ones that I'm really excited about on the red side, there's two new grape varieties that we got in production the first time in 2019 that I think are both going to be really cool and are quite different from one another. One of them is Sanso, which is a very old grape. It was actually planted in California 150 years ago. I mean, you could still find a few old Sanso vineyards scattered around the state, but it makes this lovely kind of floral, spicy, not particularly dark, not particularly tannic, nicely red fruited, good acid, juicy, friendly red wine. I think that's going to be really cool. And then on the darker side, we just made our first couple of vintages of Vacarez, which is a grape that reminds me maybe more of like a Loire Cabernet Franc than it does anything from the Rhone. It's fairly dark, a little bit herby, got good tannic structure. It's got good acid, nice blackberry fruit. I think that's going to be Super exciting. There are some grapes I understand why they became rare. Like, I understand <laughs> why a grape like Terre Noir became rare. It's pale and floral and tannic and high acid. <laughs> like it's a weird grape. It just is. I understand why people aren't like, oh, I got like thousands of acres of that. But Vacarez, I have no idea why it's not more, more common and more popular. It seems like something that everybody would be excited to work with in a Rhone environment. So that those on the red side, those are a couple I think are going to be really cool. Uh, cool. On the whites. Oh, sorry. Was, for the Vecarids, I was going to say, was that one of those ones that was like tough planting after phylloxera or something that was great and people just didn't want to take the time to plant? Maybe. I know that's what happened with Morvedra. Morvedra was almost lost after phylloxera because it was so hard to graft. And so like credit to Jacques Perrin at Bocastel in the 1950s for going out and finding all of these, these traditional varieties that pre-phylloxera had been 
planted in Chatham and Fupop and finding where they'd survived Phylloxera and bringing them back and planting them at the vineyards of Bocastel. And it may well turn out to be that's the case. Maybe there's some some issue that Vacarez was susceptible to. Maybe it was super susceptible to powdery mildew or something that was an issue in the 19th century that is not an issue now. But so far, we've loved what we've seen. That's awesome. So yeah, sorry to interrupt. What are the on the white side? So on the white side, I think all of those higher acid white Rhone varieties are going to get a really hard and interesting look in coming years. And I think it's true both in the Rhone, where they're dealing with a warming climate and looking for things that have more acid and, and carry less sugar, so less alcohol. But grapes like Pickpool, which I think is criminally overlooked in California, it's, it makes such good wines, like tropical, but really bright acid, lovely minerality. I think it it can make amazing wines here. Similar things like Claret Blanche and Bourboulanc that are both, again, they're for famous old varieties in Chateauneuf, but they represent a tiny fraction of the acreage there. They're being rediscovered because of their ability to hold acidity in a climate that gets warmer. And in California, it's never a challenge getting things ripe enough. Like You don't struggle to, to get to the sugar levels you want or to have enough sun by the time these grapes are ripe. So having things that naturally maintain great acids is such a luxury. So I think all of those, that's kind of family of higher acid white roans is going to be, it's going to be something to watch in coming years. Yeah. Where, where, are you, where are you drinking, where are you drinking Syrah outside of France, Australia, and obviously in Paso, personally? Where am I drinking France outside of France? And Australia, and yeah. California? If you can't say, yeah, if you can't say France, you can't say Australia. In Australia, I guess mainly talking about like in the U.S. Where are you personally drinking and looking at Syrah from? Ooh, you set me a lot of constraints. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was pretty tough, Brady. Um, he has I like mean, South Africa and America <laughs> left. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, in the United States. I've had some beautiful Washington State Syrahs. I think that's a region which is gonna where Syrah is going to really make a name for a lot of those Eastern Washington regions, the Red Mountain area. I've had some very nice Syrahs from Virginia in recent years. People, if they know of wine in Virginia, they maybe think of it as being kind of Viognier based because that was the that was the state grape for a while. But it's, it would stand to reason that the, a place which does well with Viognier should also do well with Syrah. And I have had some nice Syrahs from there. Beyond that, I haven't tasted a lot of Syrahs from many other places. Like I've tasted a few from Oregon, some of which have been nice. I've tasted a couple from Texas. Like one from Arizona, one from Maryland. So we're we're both originally Virginia. Brady just moved from Richmond to Maryland, so he's a big Virginia wine guy. It was originally Maryland. Where where did you do you remember the label from Maryland? I don't remember. You said some Syrah producers in Maryland. One of them might. Know. No, I don't know. That's, I don't know the uh, Virginia one either. Do you remember that? There are a couple that I really liked. One of them was Delaplane. One of them was. I had a good one from Horton. And there's one that started with a T whose name I'm forgetting right now. We did a, the Roan Rangers did a a push at one point to try to do some events in DC because we thought that it would be great to get more Virginia wineries involved. So there was a stretch where there were like 10 or so Virginia wineries who were part of the Roan Rangers organization who were pouring wines when we came to the East Coast, but would also sometimes fly out to California. And just to watch people go to a, a California wine tasting and taste Virginia Roan varieties was really fun. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Then my last question, then will be, 
if you weren't drinking Rhone varieties, where in the world are you looking right now for something that's unique? Yeah, and that's really interesting to you right now. I'm still, I'm a real lover of Burgundy. You will find me often um, trying to explore those wines. I tend on the on, my, on the white side to drink a lot of higher acid stuff. I've tried to make a point to to dive into the world of Riesling in recent years and try to wrap my head around it a little bit more. In both German, Austrian, Alsatian. In terms of reds, I'm often looking at it's sort of those less tannic oaked reds and more towards things that have brightness and clarity. So looking at like places that have old Carignan vineyards in the ground, whether that's Languedoc or whether that's South Africa or whether that's Northern California, looking at places that are doing, that are working with some of these grapes that are valuable for their translucency rather than for their sheer power. I'm not generally diving into a lot of big, rich red wines. I tend to like things that are a little more transparent to the place in which they're grown, which is, I think, part of why I love Burgundy so much. Um, we're getting towards Thanksgiving, which is my annual reminder to myself to to spend more time with Beaujolais, um, <laughs> where I think that those wines are still, they're just ridiculously good values for what you get. Some of those Cru Beaujolais, oh, that's a, those are the places that are occupying space in my head at the moment. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cru Beaujolais is coming back in my head. Thanksgiving, I was able to have a hundred or wine from hundred year old Carignan vines. It's either North Mendocino, yeah, I think it's just Mendocino County this weekend. That was cool. And they had a red and a rose from the same vines. And it was cool just to be able to see the different expressions. But the concentration of flavor, along with the acid that was still there, was just, it was great. Yeah. So. It's cool. And there are those great heritage vineyards. I mean, I love the work that Morgan Twain Peterson is doing up at Bedrock. Mm -hmm. And he's not alone, but like uh, Keegan Pasolacqua and uh, the rest of the group that founded that historic vineyard society where they're going out and finding these pre-prohibition vineyards that have incredible diversity and incredible character in California. And in some cases are finding grapes that have no known analog in Europe where they must have been a relatively obscure variety that got brought to America before phylloxera and then went extinct in Europe. The fact, the fact that they're DNA testing and finding vines that otherwise don't exist gives you a sense of just how rich the California wine culture was 100 plus years ago. And the fact that those vines survived prohibition is a miracle and that they're getting rediscovered now is, I think, one of the most exciting things going on in, in the world of California wine. Agreed. Yeah. No, I think that's a great place to end it. And I think you're setting, you're planting vineyards and farming the right way. So your vineyards will be those someday. They're going to be there. So I hope so. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Brady, do you have anything else before we, Jason, go? I won't lead you down any other convoluted rabbit holes. Of, I have a couple. Right. We'll have to wait till we <laughs> stop recording here. <laughs> cool. Thank Thanks, you. Jason. Thank you both. Thank you, Billy. It. Thank you, Brady. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, that was our interview with Jason Haas. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a little bit more about sustainable viticulture. As we mentioned before the interview, check out our open collections. We have the Bordeaux Millennium Collection as well as Bordeaux Futures, a great way to buy some back vintage or some shares in back vintage Bordeaux as well as some futures from the 2021 vintage. And stay tuned next week. We have another episode of the event podcast coming out with some great interviews as well as new collections coming up in the near future. Can't tell you exactly when yet, so stay tuned, and they're going to be an exciting lot. Have a good rest of your week, and we'll be back next week. Cheers. 
To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.